This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 16th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What makes a competitive broadband market? Is it the regulatory model that governs utilities or the model that presided over the explosion of the internet over the last two decades? Baron Zoka of Tech Freedom argues it's clearly the latter. We spoke about the FCC's upcoming vote on net neutrality. Where does this fight over net neutrality, I say so-called net neutrality because what some people argue is net neutrality isn't necessarily so, uh, where does that fight stand now? And if you wouldn't mind, draw that distinction that you make fairly regularly, which is between net neutrality and the so-called Title II regulation. So we're once again fighting at the FCC about so-called net neutrality, which is to say really the FCC's legal authority. So the NPRM, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, is now out and uh, the FCC is taking comments in July and August and they're asking what they should do next. And most people in the media have portrayed this as a fight over net neutrality. In fact, it is really a fight over two things. Does the FCC have any legal authority? And the answer is no. And we already know that the two Republicans who run the commission now think so. And they're going to undo those claims of legal authority, which is going to turn this issue back over to where it belongs, the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys general and the Department of Justice to enforce laws of general applicability, antitrust laws, consumer protection laws, and so on. And then Congress could pass a law. I'd like to see that happen. It doesn't seem likely at this point because Democrats don't want to negotiate. So that's that's the legal issue. And then there's a policy debate about net neutrality, the core of which has never been controversial. And if you actually had Congress, if you put a gun to their head and made them legislate today, they would pass a law that incorporated the core provisions, which is transparency about how broadband companies manage their networks, uh, non-discrimination requirement of some kind, a ban on blocking and a ban on throttling. And then the question is, how do you work that non-discrimination requirement and what do you do with other things that may get lumped into that? And that's where the concept of net neutrality has gotten bloated. To, in, to include other concepts that were never part of that original idea. And that's where there will be a debate about how should the Federal Trade Commission handle those things. You'll see states over the coming years will maybe be more aggressive about that, state attorneys general. That's, that's the policy debate and you're going to see that play out in this comment round. But really the audience for that is really Congress. The FCC is not going to listen to anything but legal arguments and those are pretty well defined already. Okay. So uh, in terms of uh, judicial process attempting to deal with uh, where the authorities lie, where does that stand? So the FCC has been up to court three times. It lost the first time in 2010. It won on legal authority in 2012. Asking for what? Well, it, it, it has claimed increasingly broad uh, legal discretion to regulate broadband. And, uh, and the first one was uh, Section 706, which basically was a uh, something that had previously been understood as a commandment to the agency to use its other sources of authority to promote broadband. Well, the FCC back in 2010 reinterpreted that essentially as a blank check to regulate the internet. And the court upheld that in the, the 2014 decision that kicked off the last rulemaking, but they stopped the FCC from issuing the particular rules at issue. And so the FCC, when it went back to the drawing board for the third time, came up with another source of legal authority, which is Title II. And you're going to hear about that all the time in the coming months because that's what this debate's primarily about, and that is the provision of the 1934 Communications Act that was designed to regulate 
the AT&T monopoly in the same way that railroads had been regulated since the 1880s as common carriers. And the court, the, the DC circuit, which has handled these cases uh, uh, three times now, they did uphold the FCC's claim that they could uh, make a broadband a Title II common carrier service. Now that is still in litigation. So what happened last week is the full DC circuit, all of the 10, 11 judges, declined to rehear that panel decision. So we, we got a two-to-one decision at the panel level. Tech Freedom is the intervener, the civil society group in this case. And we are the only ones that have raised fundamental questions about separation of powers. Do administrative agencies have the ability to essentially legislate in this way and should the courts defer to them? And we got a dissent at the panel stage that agreed with us. And then this went up to the full court and none of the other briefs filed by industry were mattered because their arguments just didn't go to that core issue. And we got two judges who agreed with us. And the good news here, again, we, we lost for the second time, but we, we led the losing side. And the good news is that one of those judges, Judge Kavanaugh, is generally considered to be the best barometer of where the Supreme Court stands on major questions of administrative law. And he bought our argument. And I think there's a, a good chance that there are now uh, at least four judges on the Supreme Court, which is all we need for the Supreme Court to decide to take the case, who think that this is a, the, the, the right vehicle for testing these fundamental questions about the separation of powers between Congress and the so-called fourth branch of government, these, these executive and administrative agencies like the FCC. All right. So what do we typically see uh, as uh, services that are regulated under Title II? Well, voice, for example. These are services that uh, just like uh, the telegraph service before that, uh, that, that was the classic Title II service. In 1996, Congress passed the, 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 the Telecommunications Act, the last major update to American telecom law, and they essentially enshrined a pre-existing distinction because the FCC had been wrestling with these issues about communications services, traditional ones, and then emerging computing services. And they that distinction was codified in, 1906 as a, in 1996 as a distinction between telecommunication services subject to Title II, like telephony, and then Title I information services, which was everything else. And just to, to make a long, painful, uh, detailed legal story short, the FCC chairman at the time, the Democratic chairman, indicated his view that broadband, that internet services should not be considered subject to Title II, that they should be Title I information services and the FCC should take a light hand touch to that. And that was a bipartisan consensus. There's a, a letter in 1998 that was signed by John Kerry and Democrat Ron Wyden, who has now flipped and has become a big supporter of applying Title II to broadband, who very clearly said that, that Congress had intended in 96 to preserve that distinction, basically to keep Title II away from the internet. And that's the fight now that we're getting into because once you start treating uh, any internet service as a Title II service, First of all, you open the door to other services being treated as Title II services. It's very hard to draw a distinction, a clear, bright line between the broadband and other services. And that's why, for example, among the, the groups and individuals that Tech Freedom is representing are uh, VoIP pioneers who were developing voice over internet in, in the last decade. And they fought for years to get the FCC to issue an order back in 2004 called the Pulver Order for Jeff Pulver who developed uh, what became uh, eventually the major uh, services like Vonage 
So that order drew a clear line and said, we, the FCC, will not treat voice over the internet the same way we treated voice over the telephone network. We will, we will allow that to flourish. That was the right approach. And the FCC essentially obliterated that bright line in the 2015 open internet order. So our interveners, these are Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, they're trying to make sure that the services that they develop, which, which don't clearly fall into broadband versus edge, which is the traditional distinction, that those are kept away from Title II. Because if they're not, the second thing that happens is even if the FCC says they're only going to use Title II light, they're going to forbear from all the, the most draconian parts of Title II, that, that can always be undone. That's, a, that's just future. a determination yeah. that the, and the commission agency makes today. And the can undo that at any point. And also, it's really important to note here, when we talk about Title II, there's a lot of stuff in the 96 Act about specific obligations to unbundle, to create artificial competition and so on. But the core provisions of Title II, which was the same provisions of the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887, Sections 201B, 202, et cetera, which is about just and reasonable prices and practices, that core provision of Title II has still applied to, to broadband. So it's not really accurate to say that it's Title II light. It's, it's the same old approach to regulating uh, common carrier Monopolies, like you would have regulated the railroads. How do you? How do people justify applying Title II regulation to broadband when uh, I have in the town that I live in? It's about uh, maybe a qu quarter of a million people live in the the central city, and I have at least three choices for internet providers. Well, the first thing they say is that Title II is net neutrality, right? There's been a complete conflation between the two things. Second thing they say is, well, but this is the only way to get uh, – you don't really have choice. They, they, they downplay the, the speeds that are available. The FCC has been playing games with the, the numbers and, and saying that, uh, that slower services are not real competitors and even using old data so that, for example, those, those telephone services, DSL, in the vast majority of homes in the country, those have been upgraded to speeds that are uh, faster or, or as fast as cable with next generation DSL. The FCC's under the Democrats have completely ignored those numbers. So they, they downplay competition. And, and they generally insist that, oh, well then, okay, so maybe you do have multiple choices, but that doesn't matter because they say, well, this has never been about how competitive the market is. They just ideologically want the government to be in that position to have maximum discretion to be able to regulate ultimately prices, even though they say that's not their goal. And in, in, in different markets, we would say that there is competition, say, in uh, airlines because an airline can at any, at any moment decide to enter a specific market. But I, I, it's my understanding that generally speaking, Democrats uh, view the idea of competition as uh, specific providers provide, offering a service to you now and not the implicit threat of another service entering a market at any given time. That's right. They have a totally static model. And here, this is not just an argument that, oh, all of a sudden another cable provider is going to enter the market because that hasn't happened. Right? There are very few places in the country where there are two cable providers going head to head. But here, well, this is a dynamic market and there are new technologies that are right around the corner. And I would just leave your uh, listeners with the example of 5G wireless service. Now, that's the successor to today's 4G standard. But that's a way of delivering multi-gigabit speeds, right? So faster than it could ever need, right? But any business could, could use that without having to do direct fiber to the home. And what that means is that to take the business broadband market, for example, because that's a lot of what this debate turns around, 
It may be the case today that there is only one cable provider that is wired uh, uh, your office park or, or your apartment building for that matter. But what 5G means is that anyone who's got fiber anywhere nearby, I mean within even a mile, can simply put up these very powerful antennas and then serve you that multi-gigabit speed without the enormous cost of having to go in and wire your buildings. And so all of a sudden, a market today that maybe only has one or two providers, in just a few years, could have multiple providers. And, and, and in a business like that, you get three providers, like today's wireless market, you get four nationwide carriers, you have robust competitions. You have companies who are beating them, their competitors over their heads, uh, f trying to offer unlimited data plans, for example, as AT&T and Verizon has started doing again. All right. So then what is it about Title II that might prevent or throttle the deployment of this 5G competitive uh, entrant? Right. Well, because it seems like your argument might hinge on, for some people, might hinge on whether or not that uh, Title II actually prevents these kinds of things from coming online. Right. So a few answers to that question. Number one, this was always a concern that Democrats themselves had. It is not an accident that Bill Kennard, who was the uh, FCC's first African-American chairman and the second Clinton chairman, it was he who said we shouldn't apply the, the morass of Title II on, on the cable pipe because he wanted cable, to be, cable modem to be deployed right around the country and he wanted ultimately there to be cable modem and DSL competing with each other. And he understood that if you had – the more you maximize the discretion of the regulator – and, and to, to do things that are ultimately about price controls, that's what Title II is. You, know, you hear that it's not, but it is. You inject that uncertainty into the market and companies hesitate and, and they hesitate especially on the margin. And that margin means they're not going to deploy in the areas that will be the least profitable, which is ultimately urban, heavily African-American areas and rural areas. And, and so, so then the question is, what evidence do we have of this? There's some data over the last – two years, which is the, the time in which Title II has been available, there is some data that, that uh, investment has dipped. But it's always hard to make year-over-year -year comparisons because all these companies are, investment, are in investment cycles and it goes up and it goes down. The better comparison, and maybe you can include this in your show notes, is a study that just came out that tries to compare the five-year period from 2005 to 2010 when Title II was clearly off the table, when, when even DSL, which was because it was a telephone service, had had, had arguably been subject to Title II until 2005. So he compared that window when investment expectations assumed net neutrality because the FCC had already come out under Republicans and said that that was the, that was the operating premise. So, so net neutrality was the assumption, but Title II was off the table. So they compared that window with 2010 to 2015 where the FCC had floated the idea of Title II in 2010 and then finally invoked it in 2015. And they found a considerable 20 to 30 percent drop in investment in that 2010-2015 window relative to what would have happened projecting from 2005 to, to 2010. That's you know these these economic studies are always hard to to do, but I think that's a well conducted study that that helps to just to to go through all of the investment uncertainty and put some real numbers on this, and and explain to people that we're talking about. If there's been one and a half trillion dollars invested in private capital since 1996, that there could have been even more had we not started raising the possibility of Title II back in, in 2010. Baron Zoka is president of Tech Freedom. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.